This is A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. It's the second of a five-part series of programmes from the Starmus Science and Art Festival produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Today, we meet the documentary makers who found a new way to tell the much-told story of Apollo 11. And we wanted to bring those guys to life. Who were they? What were their jobs? What were their responsibilities? And then once we had the audio, we could really shape their stories and, and tell, you know, uh, the entire story of the mission. And we'll speak to Eugene Kaspersky of Kaspersky about the peculiar challenges of cybersecurity in space. Hackers, they stay on the ground, I hope, and they will stay on the Earth. <laughs> no space for hackers in the space. That's all to come on A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, from the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. And I'm joined now by Todd Miller and Stephen Slater, respectively the director and archive producer of the film Apollo 11. Todd, I'll ask you first, it's one of, and quite rightly, one of the most examined and talked about and discussed and told stories in all of modern history. When you're bracing yourself to tell it again, how hard is it to think of a new approach to this? Or is actually even thinking of a new approach out clevering the idea? Do you just think this is an amazing story? I'll just tell it. Yeah, I think we went into it telling it the story itself in a very unique way and that we only wanted to utilize the archival materials. And then uh, we had just had, you know, some scenes that... Uh, we knew about that hadn't been depicted in either uh, fiction or nonfiction films that we wanted to see, uh, whether that was talking with astronauts or reading about them, interviews over the years. So there was definitely um, a wealth of material to draw from. And that was before you know we even had access to uh, any of the large format film or the 11,000 hours of audio that we utilized uh, for the project. So creatively speaking, the idea, you know, narratively never, never changed. Well, Stephen, on that subject, and this is the fact about the making of Apollo 11 that bewilders me, uh, 50 years after this absolutely epochal event occurs, how is it possible that there's any unseen or unheard archive, never mind this much of it? Well, in the case of the 70mm film, which kind of the centrepiece of this film is newly discovered 70mm film, which is sort of proto-IMAX format. This was in the National Archives and just been in cold storage for 50 years. And I think one of the reasons it hadn't come to light was really a technological thing, that we didn't really have the technology to, to scan this in, in, a, in a cost-effective way. And then the, the source reels were just locked away. And... Uh, no one ever asked about them. That's a, uh, it's actually a good answer is that people just didn't maybe ask or weren't looking for them. Todd, once you had your hands on this, this extraordinary trove and then had to think about how you're going to tell this story, was it a big decision, the one to avoid the standard thing of, of having talking heads and people who were there at the time appearing on camera and reliving the tale? Well, one of the beautiful things when you start listening to the actual air-to-ground transmissions uh, was inside of Mission Control, you, uh, you had a public affairs officer who sat very near where the flight director was. Those guys were really the, the voice of, for the public. And these guys just had this very kind of soothing, calming voice of airline pilots, you know. And they also distilled down all this very technical jargon that was happening on the communication loops within Mission Control and all the air-to-ground transmissions. So for me, 
those were our narrators. It was like having a, a sporting event happening and having commentators right there, uh, and it puts you right into the action of what was happening. So it was kind of a no-brainer for us to, you know, to utilize that. But just thinking of it in terms of, of how you're structuring the narrative and, and how you're telling the story, there obviously there are moments of incredible tension within, well, I guess there are with any space mission, but especially with that space mission. But obviously this is a story to which everybody knows the ending. That being the case, how difficult is it to maintain a sense of tension throughout? It was pretty difficult, and you know, while we were doing the edit, I mean, you know, we when we first started, we started with a nine-day timeline because even though the mission is eight days and some change, it's really nine days. So, when we started putting in every stitch of uh, photograph, film, video, audio, we just wanted to see all of it and then lock it on the clock and see what was there. And then you have major parts of the mission that we knew were going to be, um, you know, exciting that we can mold scenes around the launch, the landing, the splashdown. But while we were working on the film, Dunkirk had come out. So we were joking among our, our, the team, we were, we were making Dunkirk in space. That's kind of what it was. It was really the third act of a film that you were going to a place, you don't know if you're gonna come back uh, you know, alive or not. Uh, and we wanted viewers to feel that. And uh, what's really important, I think, in our film was the team we put together, we'd all just worked together so long um, from my sound designer to uh, even the iMac sound designer, my music composer I've known since we were kids, and we've talked endlessly about the score, and that certainly helps and, and aids in uh, you know, building up and ramping up the tension. Stephen, anybody who's ever edited anything knows that the decision about what not to put in or what to take out is, is much, much harder than the decision to put stuff in. Putting stuff's in easy. You can do that all day. When you have this amount of archive to get through, how hard was it to try and distill it down to the images that would tell that entire story in the length of one film? There's not as much film from the mission as you might think there is. So in some respects, there isn't enough material from the actual flight. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we did early on was, uh, and we haven't talked about this yet, but Stephen had spent years taking Mission Control audio and syncing it with soundless footage from Mission Control. And it is the most tedious thing on the planet to sit there and try to lip sync all this stuff. If, you were, if he was lucky, you'd get like a mission clock in a corner and, you know, the camera would pan back to someone. So when we were working on the film, we knew that uh, once you get in the space, you know, they turn it over to Mission Control. And it is, that was our bedrock. That was what we, you know, kind of the guidepost for the entire edit of the film. Because you're locked into wanting to use any synced up footage that Steven had worked on in the film. So if we had, you know, a good scene that had some of that in there, we could wrap an entire scene around it. Because once you see people actually talking on camera, it just makes it come alive. And I, my frustration, I'm sure Steven's and all of us, because uh, we're fans of the program and the Apollo program, we, we, you know, we saturated ourselves with watching so, so many so many more films than we care to admit, even the old, you know, 50s industrial NASA films uh, and every single fiction and nonfiction film. And that was kind of the frustration, particularly in documentaries, was that they would just kind of do this hodgepodge, over-edited uh, of, of B-roll of Mission Control. And we wanted to bring those guys to life. Who were they? What were their jobs? What were their responsibilities? And then once we had the audio, we could really shape their stories and, and tell, you know, uh, the entire story of the mission. 
Yeah, we haven't really, really talked about the audio. There's 11,000 hours of audio from the mission, which is all those guys in mission control, basically, they had headsets. So if you know that the guidance officer is speaking in a shot, we could go to that time in the mission, around that time, and I'd spend endless hours trying to match the shot of him uh, with Your the sound. social life was severely... <laughs> well, I don't have a social life, Tom. I mean, it's... I just don't have one. On, on, on the subject of people who don't have social lives, have you yet heard any theories from any moon landing truthers explaining why NASA would have gone to the trouble of shooting thousands of hours of video which they never released and then hid in a warehouse for 50 years? That's what's great. I love the counter conspiracy that <laughs> millions of people all conspired together to like fool these like five people on the planet into it. Well, what's amazing is I say this is like a jigsaw puzzle, and what you find is that everything matches ultimately. If you you can get the it matches with the with the mission clock and the timeline, and yeah, it'd be an incredibly well coordinated conspiracy to to fake all that. A perfect example is we work very closely with NASA's uh, history department and. We laid out all the photographs, but stuff wasn't lining up. The spacecraft and how it was articulated at the time of the mission, from what we knew, our previous understanding, it just wasn't lining up. Uh, so we went back to NASA's history department. We challenged them uh, with you know, the orientation of the spacecraft, how it could be, and uh, we would get answers to correctly, in this case, it was called the passive thermal control maneuver, which is just a fancy way of orienting the <laughs> spacecraft so it doesn't get too hot. Yeah. Um, and then it all made sense, to Stephen's point. The photographs made sense. Uh, once Bill Barry and his team engaged with the MIT Flight Dynamics office, they got documents from back in the day where it showed exactly how the command module stack was oriented, which was pointed up and it was spinning like a top. No one's ever depicted that before, but now we had photographic evidence that that was the case. Uh, we were talking with Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin, and they could tell us we were broadside to the sun. And then we had the audio uh, from Mission Control, which said, you guys are spinning like a rotating restaurant. And, you know, we could use that line in the film. So it was like little jigsaw, putting all those pieces in place. It all just kind of fell together. You mentioned there Aldrin and Collins, and, and just as a, a final thought on this, uh, how nervous were you about how your film would be received by the actual Apollo 11 astronauts? It was terrifying. <laughs> I think it was so great, first of all, it was just the honor of my life to, you know, and very early on, um, you know, we engaged with them. Once we had scanned the first images, the first people that we showed it to were Neil Armstrong's sons, Rick and Mark. Michael Collins got involved very early and, and, and Buzz. But it was very important because we wanted the film to be as accurate as possible. So the Saturn V launch, for instance. So we would design that scene before the film was done and just troop it down to the IMAX screen at Air and Space in, in D.C. You know, we get feedback. And we thought we would, like, nail it. And we're like, this is the greatest, you know, <laughs> launch ever. And then, you know, you'd be on pins and needles. And afterwards, you know, we like, well, you could do this and you could do that. And there's not enough high and low in this kind of thing. So it became, like, that kind of relationship where, you know, put your tail between your legs, go back to New York, work on it some more, and then show them again. But they're pretty happy with it now? Yeah. In fact, before we uh, did the, um, the screening in Sundance, we had an opportunity to show Buzz the entire film and just talk to him about some of the scenes. We tweaked a couple little things afterwards, but they've all been just so enthusiastic, and it's just been overwhelming uh, to have their support on it. Todd Miller and Stephen Slater, thank you both for joining us on A Giant Leap.
You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, from the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. And I'm joined now by Eugene Kaspersky, CEO of Kaspersky. Uh, it's coincidence. It's the same name. It's just, just, just coincidence. You're getting good mileage for your sponsorship out of that introduction. Cybersecurity is, is your thing and has been your thing since you founded Kaspersky in 1997. If you think of it in the context of what Starmus is about, space, are the challenges of cybersecurity different because it's in space, or is it basically the same thing? Uh, yes, well, actually, this, uh, I'm here at the conference because of, uh, well, actually, the three reasons. Uh, the first reason is that I'm just a curious man. So, well, actually, I, I'm not just in a computer science. I'm not lost in this in the, in the bits and bytes and the software engineering. Uh, no, I'm the man. I'm a curious man. And uh, even when I was a kid, I was reading the books about the, the earth, the space, the oceans, about all that. And I had there. I was very big fan of physics and mathematics and uh, all other kinds of science. So I'm curious man. That's why I'm here. Second is uh, the the modern science. This stars there, uh, the space uh, there, everything. Now we're exploring that. It's not possible without cyber. And it's not only about the the future. It's not about the not only the space programs or stars research. Uh, it's about our life. Well, actually, we have a cyber system in our pocket, on our table, in our cars, uh, maybe not in bicycle, but the rest of all, the coffee machines, the fridge, everything. Uh, so actually, our, our life is now completely cyber. And uh, that, but it's a uh, good thing. So it actually makes our life much more, much better, mm. uh, faster, more interesting. Uh, but at the same time, it uh, brings a lot of uh, security problems. And that's why I'm here. And the third reason why I'm here is uh, thanks to Gary Kazarelian, because he's yeah, the man who, who makes these conferences. Uh, it was just a, the chance to meet him once in Yerevan in Armenia, and he invited me to Starmus in Tenerife, and I got in love with this conference. But in, in the specific context of space, what are the potential hazards of poor cybersecurity in space? What, what could go wrong? Uh, well, actually, they say the modern uh, satellites, uh, all these uh, systems and technologies, they're completely cyber. To go to the space uh, before cyber, it wasn't possible because you need to calculate all that. Uh, well, there was uh, in the very, very beginning, there were uh, like uh, hundreds of people were calculating on these mechanical calculators. Uh, if you remember, there was uh, little machines, mm. mechanical machines. But now it's simply not possible without cyber. Uh, and as many cyber systems, uh, they're also vulnerable. So without cyber security, well, in the future, I think there is uh, simply not possible to, to, to imagine uh, the future of space without, well, say not secure, but I would better say immune uh, cyber systems. Hackers they stay on the ground, I hope, and will stay on the earth. <laughs> no space for hackers in the space. You have spoken before of uh, an idea that you have called the, the unhackable world as, a, as an ideal to aspire to. Is that actually possible? Yes. Wouldn't that put you out of business? Yeah, we, we, are, <laughs> yes, yes, we, we are working on that. And actually, we, are, uh, we recently changed uh, the definition of our mission. In the past, we were saying, like, uh, we are saving the world. We are here to save the world. And now uh, we say we build the safe world. And we have technologies, we are working on technologies, not just protect 
uh, individuals, businesses, uh, industrial sector uh, from the, any kind of cyber attacks. Uh, we are working on a system which are immune, which uh, are unhackable. To go back to Starmus, the, the festival that we're at right now, um, this particular version of it in Zurich, what have you enjoyed most so far? Uh, the difference is uh, that this time, because of the 50th anniversary of uh, Moon Project, there's so much about the Moon, about Apollo program, and it's amazing to see these people who did it, uh, who were working on the Moon or who were working on this project, and uh, to see them, to handshake them, to make pictures of them, wow, <laughs> that's, that's really cool. How do you see the partnership, though, expanding in future between Kaspersky and Starmus? Do, do you think this event in itself needs to get bigger, or is the, the relative intimacy of it, which is just in this one hall in Zurich, actually important to it? Yeah, well, actually, we are, we are, we are as an independent uh, partner, uh, we see what's uh, good, many, many good things are here, but we also see the, uh, the space for improvement, uh, and uh, we actually have a uh, more space uh, for collaboration and to help each other to build this kind of events. Eugene Kaspersky, thank you for joining us. That's it for this episode of A Giant Leap, produced by Monocle24 in collaboration with Kaspersky at the Starmus Festival in Zurich. We'll be back tomorrow with more from Starmus. And remember, you can listen to yesterday's episode of this series if you haven't already. To find out more about Kaspersky's mission of building a safer world, head to kaspersky.com. A Giant Leap is produced and edited by Bill Lutie and presented by me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.